Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Kayla. And you're listening to True Crime Exposed. Where me and my mom will bring you a new case discussion every week. We also advocate for victims through interviews with family, experts, survivors, and more. This is part two, so if you haven't listened to part one, make sure you go and listen to that because you'll be really confused if not. So with that, are you ready for today's case? Okay, I have a confession to make. Good. (laughs) That my mom wasn't here for all of the episode last week. I had to do some of the ending without her, and she was mad at me when she listened to it. (laughs) Without my permission. (laughs) Because did it. Because she said that she had a lot more to say, and she sounded dumb not saying that much in the ending of that episode. So, Hmm, yeah. (laughs) So I I faked her there in the end of the episode because I didn't want to have to stop it and say that. I had to finish some of it without her. She was at my house when we recorded, and then she was driving back home to Utah when I finished it. So I had to tell you guys that and make that confession so that she wasn't mad anymore (laughs) about how she sounded. Uh, So if you thought she sounded weird. That's why. (laughs) It wasn't really her. It was, but it wasn't. Okay. So this is part two. And we left off part one with Al suddenly having to be hospitalized due to having that mental break. So jumping right back into where we were, it was Al's mom, Gladys, who had called Jan on April 13th, 1984. She was panicking about Al, saying he won't talk back to her on the phone. So Jan had rushed to get her husband, who I believe was at work at this time. Do you remember that? That's like right where it ended. Yeah. So... When Jan arrives, she notices that Al is pale, he's mumbling, he's sweating, and she knows something is wrong. Jan knows she needs to get Al to the hospital ASAP, so she drives him to a level one trauma center where he is evaluated by a psychologist, and then he's admitted to stay in the hospital. Jan is confused and hurting for her husband. What could have brought this on? Now refresh my memory about how long after this is, like, What age are we with him? So he is, this is in April 1984. I said April, right? Yeah. And this is about a year before he goes missing because he goes missing on July 13th, 1985. So he had been involved with Dawn, that sex worker, since November of 1983. So it's been. On his 50th. Yes. Okay. So it's been a little more than a few months. He's still 50 years old at this time. And he goes for this mental health break. Jan calls it a psychotic break. So while he's spending his days in the hospital, Jan decides that it's probably a great time to get his office organized. If you remember from the last episode, he was kind of disorganized. And she noticed that right from the beginning. So Jan was due to move her psychology practice in with Al's in the near future. And she just wanted it cleaned up. She had been working, remember, I realized because we talked about where she was working at the end of the episode. You were like, is she working there still? Is she not? Mm -hmm. 
he she was working for Allah as a typist and receptionist when she met him like a decade earlier and then eventually through their 11 year marriage she did focus on her own school she got her psychology psychology degree and then she was doing her fellowship and kind of working with that and doing a little bit of her own practice but it wasn't with Al in the building yet so once she finishes that postdoctorate program that's when she's planning to move her psychology practice into the Fisher Street building and that was like a huge goal of theirs just not something they had done yet so at this time they're not working together at all and that's why he was able to that makes sense yes sense yeah So it's while Jan is rummaging through papers that she finds an overdue bill, thinking to herself, this is strange. I wonder if he forgot about this bill. But now she's paying closer attention as she goes through the paperwork, realizing that more and more bills were turning up in this stack as overdue. Even his health insurance was close to lapping. And she's wondering, was Al not paying attention to these bills? How are so many of them overdue? She finds his checkbook there as well, and it's overdrawn. Altogether, she finds about $6,000 of bills needing paid, which today would be comparable to $13,000. And this is just what she finds herself in his office. So she's a little shocked, as you would be, finding out that you are $13,000 behind. So are these bills due to his office? Like running his office or home? I think like their whole life, kind of. Just random things i don't know specifically what they were she said in her book that they never had their like power shut off or anything like that so she never even had an idea that there was a problem but man it's so nice having online because you can now, just check can everything check. <laughs> yeah just ask your husband for his password to his online part or you if you share one you just look on there yeah it would be a lot harder back then because he could just hide them in his office So Jan feels this pit in her her stomach when she connects in her mind the unpaid bills and Al's work schedule. Because how had they gone 11 years in their marriage without money problems, and now he is working more than ever before, yet they're drowning in past due bills. It just made no sense. At some point, Al had told Jan that he picked up a gig working with clients at the jail, on top of his own practice at the Fisher Street building. So taking up at that jail was something Jan had opposed because she did not think they needed the extra money and she didn't want him to be gone more. But now here she is staring down at bill after bill, wondering how she was going to help get them out of this mess. So she's kind of like, well, maybe he does need that job at the jail at this point. So he really did pick it up? It wasn't? Um, Well, that's what he tells her. Yeah. So Jan is wondering to herself if Al was making bad investments. Maybe he was gambling. She was so curious, but now wasn't the time to ask her husband about her discoveries. He was still in the hospital recovering from that, what she called the psychotic break. She did not want the stress to derail his progress. So she keeps it to herself and she starts trying to pay the bills on her own. But remember, she's just three weeks away from finishing up her postdoctorate and diving into a full-time career. So she's not able to catch them up on her own and as much as she didn't want to because she didn't get along with Al's mom Gladys very well they needed her help and she asks Gladys if she can help them get out of this predicament explaining what she had found in Al's office and asking them for the help on the terms that she just feels that she can't ask Al about it yet due to his hospitalization 
And with that, Jan sets her questions and her worries to the side so that Al can return home and recover without her bombarding him with all that she was wondering and the stress of being so overdue. And it's on May 9th that Al is discharged and a report of his state is given to Jan when she goes to pick him up. Although this report doesn't give her information on what could have possibly led to Al's mental state she found him in. You remember, he's mumbling, he's pale, he's sweaty. He was also saying some strange things to her on the drive to the hospital. Like he called her mommy. He had asked her if he'd been bad. He even mentioned his birthday. So he was kind of like alluding to some weird things. And obviously we know that's the first time he met up with Don Spence on his birthday and Jan had never seen Al like that and she thought this report might give her some insight into how he got to that point so that they could possibly avoid it in the future but it doesn't have that information that Jan is specifically looking for but as she's reading it she sees that Al had actually been hospitalized for a mental break before this had happened after his first wife Maggie had left him Al had blamed himself back then for the divorce and was really suffering with his mental state But what was really weird about this section of the report is the date reported for Al and Maggie's divorce. They had been divorced in 1972, but Al had told Jan that he was divorced in 1967. Like, what a random lie. And she's wondering why he would even lie about this. Yeah. Yeah. It shows his tendency to lie, like she said. Like, he will just lie about something small because I calculated it and we're in 1984 you know 1985 ish when this story's taking place and Jan and Al had been married for 11 years so they married around 1973 or 1974 so they must have started dating soon after he was divorced and he must have just been trying to be like I've been divorced for a while yeah he didn't want it to seem like he was freshly divorced And it's so, like, random and little. But then I think if you were married for 11 years, you'd be mad. Because you're like, if you would have just told me that in the beginning, I wouldn't have cared. But now you lied for a decade, and then it's weird. Well, why were you lying? Yeah, exactly. So she's a little taken back by that. And with the divorce date, it's also reported that Maggie had left Al because she was paying all of the bills. And that also confused Jan Because she's like, why would Maggie be paying for everything when Al was a working psychologist at that time? And then on top of that, Jan discovers he was not only admitted for a mental break once before this, he had actually been admitted twice before this, making this time that she took him in his third stay. Earlier in his life, Al's father had admitted him to a place called The Haven. Neither of his parents nor him had ever mentioned this to Jan, and her mind is reeling. She's like, what was Al's diagnosis at the Haven? But when Jan tries to ask Gladys about it, she just refuses to talk about it. So Jan's like, okay, I want to know like what all this is about. Why has he been hospitalized so many times? Right. And you said his parents were didn't like her. So I'm well, didn't like her, but also like had high expectations. Yes. Them, so they, she probably just didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. And was embarrassed. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, because she... If anything was wrong with her son. Yeah, it's about appearances. So she's like, "Mm, no, we don't need to discuss that. And then Jan is feeling very alone because she's in this marriage with a man she seemingly does not even know. But she sets all of that to the side, like I said, to focus on Al and his recovery. 
And once she, once he is better, she's going to address all of this and get to the bottom of the lies. But once he is home, Jan can feel their marriage changing. He is avoiding her because he's staying at work longer. He's canceling their lunch dates, which had been purposely set up because of his later work hours. And he's taking his mom grocery shopping regularly, but he just somehow cannot find the hours to spend quality time with his wife. Obviously, any spouse is going to catch on to these little changes in their partner. It starts to become obvious when someone is going out of their way to not spend time together. So Jan's heart is aching as she longs to know where the drift is coming from. So at what point did she ever address these bills or? She, I doesn't address the bills per se, I don't think, but she starts to question him on some of the little lies. Like as the year goes on, she kind of starts to question and then they start fighting more and more. And then she's, feel, you know, so more and more as 1984 goes on, she's feeling more and more concerned about the marriage. <laughs> like she I can feel it's all. I was wondering because that'd be hard. Yeah. I think I'd like march into that hospital and just be like, what? What are all these like, bills? Why are we $6,000 in debt? And yeah, I would too. But I can't keep anything to myself. <laughs> like, can you? If I have a problem, it just immediately comes out of my mouth. <laughs> I can't even control it. So she had a little more self-control. She's trying to let him recover, but it doesn't seem like they necessarily get right down into it. She does. Ask, she had asked him at some point, I read in her book, if they could sit down and go through their finances because she said she needed to be aware of all their finances, but he wouldn't sit down with her and do it. Yeah, I had just wondered if they, if he was drawing away from her, withdrawing away from her because of those reasons or those weren't even addressed yet and he just automatically was yeah I think he just automatically was I think he was getting in deeper with John and Dawn and just kind of starting to spend more time with them Mm -hmm. and so he's just pulling away from Jan probably like caring slightly less about her feeling weird about the marriage at this point at least and Jan doesn't know where it's coming from. She wonders if it has to do with his mental break. She wonders if it is tied to the stress with those overdue bills she found. And finally, she can't keep all her questions to herself. So she does ask him about all that mumbling when she was driving him to the hospital. She's like, you brought up being bad. You brought up your birthday. What were you talking about? And I was like, oh, that's weird. It must have been because I've been mentoring this other psychologist. It's a woman and she took on a sex worker as a client and she's been getting in over her head. And I guess in my deteriorated state, I must have been thinking of her as myself. So basically he kind of says what he's doing, but not really him. Yeah. Like Maybe he didn't know all the things he said while he's mumbling, so he just kind of tells the truth, but asks someone else. Like, I'm mentoring this lady, and I just must have taken on her story. Which, looking back, Jan obviously knows he is... It was was him, yeah. Yeah. This is a super strange response. Jan, even in that moment, thought it was weird because he never mentioned mentoring another psychologist. But Jan decides to accept this answer. However, she's hyper aware now of his unusual behavior since he came home from the hospital. Al was all of a sudden taking a special special interest into his looks. He was dressing nicer. He seemed to care about his appearance much more than he ever did before. And she does question at one point, could he be cheating on me? But quickly, that 
thought is dispersed because she knows Al doesn't hang out with people who cheat on their spouses. Well, that's what she thinks. And (laughs) she thinks all his friends are these honorable men, just like she thought he was. But then Jan does question him about it. And he's like, of course I'm not. How would I even have time to cheat on you? I'm working my practice and the extra hours at the jail have me swamped. Like I'm just working all the time. And she starts thinking to herself that maybe she's just letting her mind race too much because Al is kind. He has never physically abused her. He spoke really respectfully to her. She feels that he loves her. He's still sweet with her when he answers her questions. He calls her Jan Jan. But she just can't shake this unnerving sense that things were coming to an end. Through all of this, Al continues to hang out with his buddies, John Carl Fry and Don Spence. When he is with them, he is Al Miller. Remember, this is his alias. And we had left off part two with Al going to their apartment and offering John money to never see Don again. They had settled on a $5,000 agreement and John played his part for now. So it seems that John and Don do move apart from each other to appear that they are sticking to this deal for the $5,000, but John doesn't move out of town because I think it was like $5,000 in a plane ticket, but I don't think he goes far because he's still in regular contact with Al. And eventually he's just getting sick of this agreement. He doesn't feel that Al should be running his life or telling him what to do. Him and Don both kind of saw Al as, I don't know, like they didn't take him serious. They kind of saw him as like a chump, like gullible, like they could play him. So Al wanted Don all to himself? Yes. Like he just wanted John out of the picture. John's getting sick of it, and eventually he comes up with this plan. So he meets up with this other guy he knows from the streets, and it's a man who's addicted to many of the same drugs as John, someone who would do almost anything to get those drugs, and they hatch out this plan to get John and Don back together. It's on a day that John is expecting Al to come over to his place that he has that man come out and hide nearby. He's keeping an eye out for Al's arrival. John explains that Al is a white man with reddish blonde hair. He has turtle-rimmed glasses that he always wears. He's about 5 foot 10 inches tall and around 170 pounds. So when Al gets to the area, this man spots him, and the plan is on. He runs up to Al pulling out a switchblade, and he sticks it right up into Al's ribs. He doesn't stick it in, but he just, like, presses it against his ribs. And that's John's cue to run out. And he chases this guy off. He's saving the day. And he tells Al that this man has been a problem for so long, explaining he's actually really worried for Don's safety because of this guy. And a defeated Al is like, you know what? You should come back with Don and protect her. So basically, he gets Al to invite him back into Don's life. Yeah. And it's just like that that John's plan works. And he didn't even have to return the $5,000 payment. So John and Don end up moving into a small home in the Springwells neighborhood. And an interesting thing about John is that he loved kids and often came to their defense. He had a little neighbor there that he was a little kid and he really liked her. And protecting kids was like this huge thing to him, which of course I'm on board. We do have to protect the kids, but then he's an like evil in other aspects of his life and it's just so weird to me (laughs) how you can have like high morals in one part and like I like when it comes to like hurting people or killing people like you'll defend kids you'll like hurt someone who hurts a kid but you're like willing to like kill other people 
<laughs> Jan says said to me in our interview that she it is believed by the police and her that he has killed more people than just Al. Mm. And they knew who he was. They wanted it. Like Al's murder was the perfect opportunity for them to actually get him into prison. Yeah. So. And he had done other murders too. He had never been convicted of them. But he was so known to the police department that there was a secondary weapon search at at the courtroom, not just at the front of the building, because they knew that he had skeletons in his closet and they were worried that he would be killed on the witness stand. He'd, I mean, he bragged about, I don't know how he never got charged with another murder, but he would brag about, quote, and these are his words, carving up the n- downtown. So when um, Don moved out of John, I thought John was Don's pimp. So did she stop working? I don't think so. It, I would assume that they probably were still in pretty regular contact. They just probably were like, oh, Al's coming over at this, like, we can't be together for this agreement or whatever. But I think they were basically together. He just didn't want Al telling him anymore that he couldn't be. So as the months pass by, Dawn is actually getting sick of Al, but she needs more from him. She's demanding his money. She needs new clothes. She needs drugs. She needs paid for his time. Although at this point, it seems that they had stopped having sex. At one point through their year and a half together, they had they were having sex obviously when they first started meeting up but Dawn does complain to someone about thinking Al was a pinhead and that she doesn't have sex with him anymore he's just lucky she sucks his D-I-C-K I can't say it (laughs) (laughs) I can't say it on here and that's sad to me like I kind of feel bad for Al but then I feel more bad for Jan because he's cheating on her like you know what I'm saying I feel bad that he thinks these are like his friends even though it's like I he really shouldn't even be involved with these people I am mad at him that he's cheating on her but then I just have a little bit of empathy that they like are just talking about him behind his back they think he's like so gullible they think he's like stupid and he's kind of thinking like they're pals that is sad. Like, how do you get wrapped up in that? I mean, it does have to be mental illness. Yeah. And clearly he did have some mental illness with the, all the times he was hospitalized and all of that. So, and I think it ties into like what happens to him. Like, it is sad. Like, that story without him being married is sad. <laughs> was he ever diagnosed? She didn't say specific? if he was diagnosed at that hospital stay Mm -hmm. and I don't think he was because she said there was no indication of what led to this but she that's what she was wondering if he was diagnosed in the haven all those years ago when his dad admitted him but no one would say what it was yeah yeah anyway as John and Don grow more and more annoyed of their pal Al they start noticing that little tendency to lie and John isn't buying it anymore so who is this guy By the beginning of 1985, the duo knows that Al Miller is actually Al Canty, that he is married, that he works at the Fisher Fisher Street building, and that he lives in Gross Point. They even have a full layout of his house. And John grew exhausted of Al's exaggerated stories, so he does some digging. He finds a number for Al's home, and he calls it, but a woman picks up. And it's not Jan. It's actually a woman watching their home while they were out of town. And she says to John that Al and his wife are out of town, but she could take a message. 
and there's no need for a message, but when he hangs up that call, he is fuming because that confirms that Al was, in fact, lying to him. What audacity did this Al guy have lying to John? Remember from part one that someone had stopped by Al and Jan's home to ask Jan if this was Al Canty's home while she's gardening? Mm-hmm. So that's because of this whole situation. And Jan had told this man she would take a message, but she couldn't. And so she shows him her muddy hands because she's gardening. But he just chuckles and he says, no need. He would just call Al later. And then that seemed off when he drives away because Jan's like, well, why would you stop by our home if you already have his number? Like, why would you come by here looking for him, asking if this is his house when you could just call him? It was John's friend. She found that out later when she saw him on the newspaper, this friend that helped discard of Al, and his name's Frank McMaster. And so when she saw him in the newspaper, she recognized that he was the guy that came to her house. And I wonder, like, if her mind just thought it was one of his patients or something. She actually did think, was it a guy from the jail? Like, she said that, uh-huh. is this one of his jail patients? That's hard because of his profession. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you could believe or think in your mind, like, what this could be. Like, for me, if some guy showed up like that, I mean, I would be super weirded out. Especially when he says he's working in the jail. Still probably don't want them to have their address, but (laughs) you would go to that. So, I also had mentioned that Jan was receiving weird calls just before his disappearance. And that was John as well. The man with slurred words on the other end of the line that had made some late night calls was not just, I mean... She just attributed it to drunk dials, which I was going to say he wasn't drunk. He might have been. He, and he was probably on drugs, which is probably why his words were slurring. But they weren't just accidental drunk dials. They were on purpose. Just fi- I think just confirming like that he has a wife. She's there. What not? And it's something that Jan had shrugged off until she found those three cigarettes under her windowsill. Something she knew were not hers or Al's, and all of this ties back to John discovering Al's real life. Now, John and Don are beaming, because sure, Al had given them money, which made Al feel somewhat in charge, like he had the power to take that money from them, and that's why he paid John to stay away from Don. But now John and Don are in charge. Al has a wife, a life, a full psychology practice of his own, and they could just blackmail him. The couple actually wants to leave Detroit for California anyway. They want to start over, and John calculates how much it would cost for them to make the trip out. They would just get all they could from Al before running off to California. But Al still has real life going on back home. He has real bills that are not being paid, and because of multiple overdraft fees, the bank freezes one of Al's accounts. And this is probably one of the first time he is completely aware that handing over cash freely to this people just is not going to work. Al is supposed to drop off cash to John, and he actually doesn't show up. He doesn't pay. And John is like, nope, not going to fly. So, while Al's car is parked in front of a receiving hospital, John steals it, giving Al the message that the cash better keep coming. They return the car to Al, but it's beat up, it's not usable, and it needs repairs. So, by the next cash drop, Al Al shows up in a red Thunderbird car, saying that he's just borrowing this car from a co-worker's daughter while his is being repaired. And I actually think it was Jan's car that he was driving, but he doesn't know that they know he's married so he can't say this is my wife's car he still thinks that they think he telling his little lie yes so he's like oh i'm just borrowing this car 
and whatnot. I'm sure they knew it was his wife's car by that point. And it's soon after this that John says to Al, you know what, Dawn really needs a car of her own, you know, for transportation. And the reality is that they want a car so they can use it to leave to California. But Al doesn't need to know that. So what does Al do? He takes Dawn car shopping and she chooses a white 1975 Thunderbird on July 3rd. And Al forks out $1,600 for Dawn's new car. Jan actually thinks that Dawn purposely chose out a Thunderbird car because she knew that her car was a Thunderbird. Mm. Like she was like, did she do that on purpose? Yeah. Like to match my car, like his wife's car. I don't know. Now back at home in his real life, Jan is getting frustrated with him. She feels the distance. She feels like he's avoiding her and any concern she has. For example, those cigarettes and the phone calls and the dude stopping by. Those freaked her out. They were this weird thing that really made her question for her safety. She felt like they had a trespasser on their property once she found those cigarettes. And she couldn't imagine someone outside lurking around. So when Al comes home that day, she tells him that she has an eerie feeling. After finding those cigarettes, she had checked the entire perimeter of their home but finds nothing. They have an alarm system and she knows all her windows upstairs are securely locked, but she couldn't remember the last time she went in her basement to check the windows down there. So she makes her way downstairs, but each step towards the dim lit basement was scaring her. She's able to reach the bottom and checks each room. And as she searches, she is also looking for this album the, album the couple has of all their property pictures they had taken to account for the things they owned, but she can't find it. The only thing she finds downstairs is this envelope containing a few random keys. So she's telling Al about this, and it's after he worked a super long day. It's dusk outside, and she was already frustrated with him getting home later, especially when she was in such a panic all day. So she tells him about the cigarette situation, saying she feels like someone is watching the house. And Al is like, okay, well, did you call the police? Did you see them? And Jan pauses, like, what do you mean them? Why are you assuming that there is more than one person? No, I didn't call the police. There were only a few cigarettes outside, but my gut is telling me that it's wrong. And Al tells her he's not assuming it's more than one person. It's just a figure of speech he's using, and he's not even sure what's going on. He doesn't even think someone was outside of their home. So at that point, does Jan, like, does she now think that he knew? That it was probably John and Don. I think she's kind of questioning it because why would she be like, what do you mean them? Mm -hmm. Like, because I say them a lot. It's actually funny. I listened to one podcast. Oh, it's on the Darley Routier case, which is controversial because people, she's on death row. People think she did it. Some people think she didn't. I think she didn't. But one of the weird things in her phone call was that she said them about an intruder she says like oh they came in like and people are like well that doesn't make sense I always say they and them for one person I don't know why I'm sure it's wrong but I do say it so I can see how he could be like it's just a figure of speech but still at this time he didn't admit anything no and I'm sure even he knows when she's questioning him that it is them like it has to do with John he has to know that they're doing this so but he just He's like, no, he just acts like it's nothing. That's probably why he pushes it to the side so much, because he knows who it is. So he's not going to investigate who's stalking his house when he already knows. But Jan doesn't know that, and she's freaking out, as I would be too. 
Yeah, I would definitely. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the conversation goes on and Al ends up laughing at Jan, telling her she only found a few cigarettes outside. Like, you're in a huge panic over that. And now she's mad because he's not listening to her. He's not taking her seriously. Do not belittle me, she says. It connects to the late night calls and you're refusing to see what's going on. And I searched this home for the property pictures and they're missing. Now Al is annoyed and he's like, okay, calm down. I left the property picture album in the car. I will go and grab it now. So he goes to retrieve it. And when he comes inside to give it to her, the album itself reeks of cigarettes. And she's like, okay, what is going on? Asking him, why does this stink so bad? And why did you take it? But Al is done talking. He walks past her, trying to ignore the conversation. But Jan says, no, I'm asking you a question. Now Al is snarky. And he says, no, you asked me two questions. All I did was take the album to show Ray because I thought him and his wife could make one for themselves. I thought it was a good idea. I was just bragging about you. And with that, he walks away to take a bath, leaving Jan there spinning and questioning herself. Do I have an overactive imagination? So Ray that Al referred to is an old friend from Al's high school. He hadn't seen him in years, but there was one day that year that Al calls him up and he wants to go to lunch. It kind of seems to me that Al was looking for a friend outside of John and Don that was also not super close to Jan. Jan knew him, but like she didn't know him, know him. Like she knew who he was and all of but that. They weren't like a good. They weren't like hanging out as a couple. Yeah. So I think that. Al felt he could vent to Ray a little. They had been close in their younger years, and Al had done some questionable things around Ray before, so he trusted him. When Al had gone to lunch with Ray, he starts telling him about John, and he portrays himself as this victim to John who was just taking him for all his money, which he kind of is. But then it's like... Well, they're like basically blackmailing him. Yeah. Give us all this money. Yeah. Like, Al is... Yeah. We know you have a wife. We know where you live. Yeah, I agree. Al is a victim to John and Don. Jan is also a victim to them and Al. Mm -hmm. So it's just the whole thing is hard to like dissect. But he is telling Ray about John. And by this point, it seems that Al is also getting annoyed. So John's annoyed of Al. Al's annoyed of John. Al is saying that John's a huge pain and that Dawn is always sick because of all the drugs she's doing and she really needed to clean up. He actually, Al had actually offered Dawn to go to college saying that he would pay for it, which is very similar to like with him and Jan. I don't know that he necessarily paid for Jan's college. I'm sure because they got married that he helped, but like he was saying, oh, I could support you through college. Oh, and he had offered her when he said that, that she could come work for him. Oh, Dawn? Yeah. So he's kind of like repeating patterns. And Ray even notices that he is repeating patterns from years earlier because at one point in Al's life, he had dated this young single mom who was a student and he had started paying for all of her things. He was giving her money. He eventually becomes too clingy and he's just, you know, trying to be too involved with this woman. And her name's Carla and she cuts it off when she felt like she was a woman being paid for. And Ray sees this connection with Don because he does kind of explain his relationship with Don. So Al feels like he can tell this friend all this stuff because 
he's not that close to Jan. Yes. So he feels like he can trust that he's not going to say anything. Mm-hmm. But based on what he tells Jan later, it seems that Ray also didn't have the full story. Like he hmm. is being told a version, but I think even like it's a more open version, but it's still like Al's narrative. So it also as he's kind of noticing these patterns, it also takes Ray back to an old memory with Al when they were out of town for a bachelor party. And Al brings the sex worker back to the hotel, bragging that he paid for her with money he had stolen from his girlfriend at the time. So it does seem that Al has this history of this behavior. It was just something he was able to contain from those in his life he needed to keep appearances up with, like his wife, like his parents. So years earlier, he was involved with sex workers, too? Yes. Oh. Yeah. So it's not just, like, this one-time thing. For Jan, she just never knew about that past. Yeah. And through all her worry and impending feeling of doom, Jan had called her parents asking if they could make a trip out to Michigan from their home in Arizona sometime soon. She needed to talk with them. She planned to chat with them about her marriage and her questions in leaving. She knew something was really off and that Al was not acting like the person she loved or married. But she goes back and forth because they have been married for over a decade. She's not a quitter. She wants to make it work. Yet she feels this pull to leave. She had even applied to have her psychology license approved in Arizona. And when she receives that letter of approval, she felt a solidifying feeling that she was meant to go. So her parents agreed to come out, telling her that they would make it at the end of July. None of them realized that by then it would already be too late and her parents would be bumping their trip up a few weeks because Al goes missing that July before they could make it out. Now, that argument Jan and Al had about the cigarettes and the property photo Wait, album. he goes missing in that July? This is the next year. So he went in the hospital in April and then all these problems are happening through the next year. By 1985, they know that he's married. And so it's in those beginning months, like January to July, 1985, when, like their marriage is bad. The so end of her 1984 was going to come out in July, July of 1985. 1985, but he goes missing July 13th before they come. Oh, yeah. That argument Jan and Al had about the cigarettes and the property photo album was very close to the date that Al goes missing. And it's on July 12th that he wakes up Jan and asks her to go to breakfast and tells her that they could start moving her practice in with his practice, something that had been a plan for years. Jan says, okay, does he want to talk about things or is he going to acknowledge that it's over? After breakfast, they are packing up Jan's practice to move it into the Fisher Street building. And she's not as excited as she should have been. All she can think about is if she will be packing up again soon to take her stuff to Arizona. But she tries to push the thought out of her head. Maybe things can get better. Maybe this can work. They end up getting into a little argument as they're setting stuff up at his office. And she's frustrated, thinking to herself, why is this such an unhappy time when it should be this huge celebration? This moment of joining their practices is what they had dedicated years to. All those years of going to school, of sacrificing vacations and weekends. All of that was to lead them here to joining their practices. This is when the new start of their marriage was supposed to be, where they weren't working as much. They were supposed to travel and enjoy each other more. 
They spent years counting down to this day, and Jan explains it as, quote, We had arrived at our destination, but it felt like the wrong stop, end quote. And it's the very next day that Al goes missing, that horrid July 13th, 1985 day. He had come downstairs that morning dressed in a shirt she recently bought him and wearing her favorite suit. He had looked handsome, and she felt a tinge of sadness with where their relationship was. She was still mad at him for their fight the day before. He had just been so evasive lately. She was in her jammies having breakfast, and he walks up to her, kissing her on the cheek, and then walking out the door to get in his car and wave goodbye. It's merely moments after Jan goes about her morning that he returns to the house, and she's like, oh, did you forget something? But he says, no, I just wanted to say I love you before I leave, and I want to apologize. And Jan says, oh, about yesterday, forget it, you were tired. And that's all she says. She's so drained from the downward spiral of their relationship that she says in her book she couldn't even muster up the energy to ask why he was angry the day before, and she couldn't muster up the energy to say, I love you too. And that's something she will always regret. So Al jumps back into his car and he waves goodbye to her for the last time. It seems to me that Al must have been getting tired of the double life he was living. Mm -hmm. Because he is giving all this money away. He's in debt now. He's coming to the realization that he's being taken advantage of. I'm sure he did have some guilt about what he was doing to his wife. And it kind of seems like he's now taking the steps to try to back out of it but he's almost in too deep. Like he must have felt himself something weird that day to come back and say, I love you. Yeah. Or he was feeling bad. Like, and he knew that day he was going to cut off the money with John and Don. So I do think that day he was thinking, you know what? Like I have been rude. Like I should go back. I should apologize. Like I'm going to start working on my marriage is what it seems like to me. Yeah, it does. So like, he, like I said, he does go to John and Don with the plan to cut ties. And that's after calling Jan at 3 p.m. to let her know he would be home by 7, which we know never happens. Recently, Don had called John at work because he wasn't bringing them as much cash as he normally did, and she was desperate for it. She thought the only thing she could do was call his work phone and beg him for the money. And Al gets fed up, and he says, do not ever call me at work again. And this call showed each side something. Al realizes that his lies with John and Don are coming to an end. If they had his work phone number, then they knew his real name, and he could no longer play Al Miller. And for Don and John, they realized that the money he had provided them for the last 18 months was probably going to end soon. Al had given the couple more than $150,000, which... Oh, my goodness. And this is back in 1985. Jan said in her book it would be more than $350,000 today. That is so much. So much. So you can see why they were getting behind on their own bills. $350,000? Yeah. That's a lot of money. It's like, where did it all come from? Did they have a savings? She must have not been on the savings account yeah and i mean i check those things (laughs) (laughs) you check everything all the time time. i know and maybe she didn't have access to his stuff i mean me and jacob have completely separate so he can't see my bank account and i can't see his i mean we would give each other the password if we wanted to we just aren't logged into the same thing and back then it was hard because you You could hide like monthly statements yeah it's just paperwork had no access to it at any second yeah she probably couldn't even go in the bank and be like, this is my husband. Like, if she's not on the if account, she's not, she's not, on, not on it. it. Yeah. So, yeah. 350000 
like today. That's shocking because she, you know, she only found that six thousand dollars worth in debt. Yeah, and so he must I have used up some savings or something. Probably, and like was just giving them all his money every month, Ugh. not paying his own bills. So he was in deep with these people, and obviously, they want it to continue. They, you know, she's not even having to have sex with him at this point, but she's getting paid for her time, a lot of money. Jan explained it in her book as being like a like a sex worker's dream, like to get this guy who would give them this much money. Just give them money. Yeah. So Al goes to Peterborough and Second Street to pick up John and Don, as he often did, soon taking them back to their home on Casper Street. And when they walk to the front door, there is an eviction notice. John gets all frustrated. He's throwing a fit. He's like semi-joking, but probably not really joking with Al about giving them extra money to not be kicked out. And Al ignores him. They drop Don off. And then the two men go out for a drug run. Al is purchasing the drugs for John one last time. But John doesn't know this is the last time. He's expecting more money out of Al. But when they return to the Casper Street house, Al confronts John and Don with his intentions. Something that John felt was coming but couldn't handle. He tells John that he will not be giving them another dime. An entitled and ruthless John starts to lose it. Don is there just watching. And Al says, you know what, John, calm down. It's my money. And if you don't like it, F you. F you, John. I do not have to justify anything to you. And this is super unlike Al. Jan said in her book, it was uncharacteristic of him to like be swearing at someone, be freaking out. I think even it probably caught John and Don off guard. But that is also what goes into making me think he was realizing like you guys are just using me. Yeah. So is this from John's point of view? I think I think this is what comes out in court. Okay. Yeah, because obviously, how would we know this? They must have reiterated it, John or Don. So now Al's the ang- angry one. He's standing up for himself, and it's then that Al takes a step towards John to show that he is not backing down. But John takes a step himself, and now they're face to face. This is when Al pushes John's shoulder back. Jan says that Al never did see danger coming. And that shoulder tap set John off. He grabs a bat nearby and he swings it hard, connecting with Al's right temple. His glasses fly off and they shatter on the nearby ground. His head is dizzy and he's stumbling around. Jan says in her book, quote, For all the time playing Miller, he didn't realize the corridor gave no second chances. End quote. And then John hits Al with the bat a few more times before shattering his forehead. It's then that blood seeps from Al's face, his eyes, his mouth, his ears, and the gash on his head. He is no longer getting back up to fight. He's no longer moving. John realizes he had murdered Al Canty. Jan said, quote, He had a lifetime of words he would never say, decades of places he would never travel, and lies he would never utter. End quote. As Don and John are looking down at the crime scene, a scene of brutality and evil, he yells to her that she better go out and make some money. So she listens, and she walks out the door to go to the streets and is able to find two men that night who pay her for sex work. While she's doing that, John takes Al's body to the bathroom and hangs him upside down by his feet. And then he slices his neck open to drain the blood from Al's body. And he leaves Al there for two hours while he goes to find Dawn to make sure she didn't confide in anyone. And she didn't. Don comes back to the home with John and the cleanup starts. John goes to the bathroom, 
to Al's drained body and strips him of his clothing before getting down into his own underwear. And John starts by removing Al's head from his body. Then he detaches Al's hands and Al's feet. Ooh, why should they were trying to get him out? I think they thought of the head, the feet, and the hands as parts of his body that would be distinguishable, like could identify him. So he cuts those off, and I believe when he discards of the body, he separates these things. Mm -hmm. So they're not all in the same place. So basically he doesn't want people to find them and discover that it's Al. So while he's doing this, he makes trips to the basement to wrap Al's head, hands, and feet in newspaper. And then he stuffs that into green plastic lawn bags and puts the packaged body parts into the fridge. It's the day after John goes missing that Jan gets her friend to help her look for clues. Like they're driving around. We know that she reported him to the police. And it's after that that they report him that they, you know, they go around. She's wondering if he had another psychotic break or if he took his own life, which is what you would think when he was just, you know, the year before hospitalized for this mental break. And then she ends up calling Ray after reporting him missing after calling her parents after calling his parents and after she calls the media so she was she called the media herself in the beginning because she wanted his missing story out Mm -hmm. but then it's once the story's discovered that she felt attacked so ray comes over and he asks jan what she knew about al's clients at the jail and she says nothing and he's like okay because he actually started hanging out with them on the corridor which I said the corridor earlier in one of Jan's statements, that seems like what they called the area that that all these people, yeah, it was called like the cast corridor. Mm -hmm. So that's what they're talking about. Just this like seedier area. So he's like, yeah, he started hanging out with some of his clients from the jail out on the corridor. And Jan said, it seemed like Ray wanted to say more, but Jan was too exhausted to question further. And Ray just left it at that. Which is what makes me think he didn't know the full story because Al actually didn't work at the jail. So yeah, he, he told him that. Yes. And they find that out because through all of this, you know, Jan goes back to her dad and she's like, maybe it is one of like these jail clients. And her dad calls the jail to see what clients that Al was working with there. And the prosecutor staff says Al never worked here. He's never worked with us like he's never had a job here oh my (laughs) yeah and so that's obviously super confusing to jan and her dad it's almost like more confusing yet paints a clearer picture because something's yeah like they're okay he was lying there's so much wrong and it just it didn't make any sense So once Al is missing, there are obviously these pieces of information coming through that paint a deceitful picture. But Jan doesn't grasp the full concept of all that had happened until Detective Gil Hill brings her in to tell her that they found Al's dismembered remains. We went over that in part one, as well as Jan identifying Al's head, which was a horrifying experience that the media tried to gain access to. So after the couple dismembers the man who provided them their life for the last 18 months, they have to get get him out of their home. They have to clean up. We know his head, hands, and feet were placed into bags, and then a fourth bag contained his bloody clothing, weapons, and any other evidence that tied them to Al's murder. 
It's around midnight when they grab everything and hop into Al's car. Now they're headed to North Michigan. A man John knows by the name Frank McMaster, he lived about four hours north in Emmett County. And it's on the way that John starts discarding of Al's remains off the highway in random places. So they're on I-75 for the main trip, making these little stops along the way. Al's torso is discarded into a dumpster, then his arms behind a gas station along the way before throwing more parts of Al's body off a freeway ramp. Al is being discarded, like scattered. Eventually, they make it to the tip of northern Michigan to the front door of Frank's cabin. And he's kind of annoyed. It's the middle of the night and he really doesn't want to be involved. But John intimidated Frank. He would not make the mistake of defying him, so he offers his help, where he takes John to a dead-end logging road. And this is where Frank digs a shallow hole. He's panicking, but this would be his same fate if he defied John. The rest of Al is buried here, and then they use Frank's barbecue to burn Al's wallet and anything else they had. And they had buried the identifying body parts of Al in this hole, so his hands, his feet, and his head. So I still don't think Frank is like a great guy. It's said that he's scared of John, but he also is like laughing with him throughout the day, doing other things. I don't really know. Like he's scared of him, but like, did you turn him in right when he left? No. He even helps him a little more later on with the car. So well, I, he probably realizes he would get in trouble. He's messing around with a dead body. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know if he's scared of John and then he's scared to go to the police. I don't know. I'd be scared of both. Yeah. To get in trouble and to obviously be killed if you're going to go against this guy. (laughs) Yeah. There was one point where Frank challenges the fact that Don wasn't in the home when the murder took place. This is what John had been telling him. And then John admits that she was there. In fact, she had packaged Al's dismembered remains while John did the removal. But Don didn't want anyone to know. And once all of this is completed, John and Don head home. They feel like they got away with it. Well, John does, but Don is more worried about the murder and if they were really in the clear. The news of the disappearance is out the following day after Jan had contacted the media, and that made Don nervous. He intimidated witnesses. They And remember, DNA wasn't like what it is today. So if you don't have people willing to come forward, and and frankly, back then, again, I want to remind the eye, there was so many murders. They did not have a lot of time to spend on each and every single murder. They didn't. Uh, it's down today, but back then, I mean, and I had a police officer remind me, so that's 900 murders a year that we knew about. Later on, I heard that when they were redoing some areas of the city, they found bodies and underneath manhole covers and other places that were never counted. So now it's time to figure out what to do with the doctor's car. Originally, John wanted to sell the car for money, of course. These guys did this because of greed. They wanted Al's money, but when a friend tells John that the police had been around his home, where the murder had taken place, he gets all freaked out. So he's like, scratch that, let's abandon this car, and he brings in a known car thief, Gary Neal. He wanted Gary to take the car off of his hands and sell it himself, but when John admits that he killed Al, Gary wants nothing to do with the car. But he will help John get rid of the car. They also need Frank's help again, and he agrees to follow John and Gary. They make it to a railroad where they leave Al's car, burning it to try and get rid of any of the evidence that that they had been in the car. Now, while officers are investigating Al's disappearance, one detective comes across a man who he knows 
is what they call a snitch. And I love a snitch. You should always snitch on these people. Well, I was just thinking, like, there's so many people John's getting involved. I know. And, like, their neighborhood wasn't private, I don't think. They ran around with a lot of different people doing drugs and whatnot. So this is a guy on the streets who does drugs and is known to snitch on the other people, which I'm like, good. I'm glad that there's people like this. Uh, so he, the officer, he asks where Dawn is. And this guy is like, yeah, uh, she's been hanging out with some crazy dude named John. But she also has a trick that's a doctor. Now, I don't know if that's the correct wording for someone who's purchasing sex work in today's world. But that's what the guy says. And this guy says that that doctor is a good guy, though. And then there it was, a connection to the missing man. And then law enforcement accesses John's long record. They come across the address for the Casper Street house. And it's not long before police find the abandoned and burned car. They have a feeling that John Carl Fry is involved. And they did get down to it pretty quickly. Remember, Jan's brought in just about a week after Al goes missing to be told that they had found her husband's remains. So this is about five days into the investigation when a search warrant is issued for the home on Casper Street. Detective Brantley and Detective Landeros were assigned to the case. And with the search warrant, they go into the home, which is obvious on site that something sinister happened here, on top of all the spoons and syringes laying around the home. And here's what they find. Missing carpet, brain matter on the ceiling, two towels stained with blood, a piece of Al's hair, which is connected to a piece of his scalp laying on the carpet. There's a blood trail leading downstairs to a pool of blood near a box of plastic leaf bags. There's blood in the hallway, in the bathtub, and then there's a piece of paper with the name Al Canty and his contact information. Remember, Jan is brought in before Al's body was discovered, and they tell her they find this piece of paper with her husband's name on it and that they think he was murdered. Oh, yeah. Which, when I first covered that part, I was thinking that was really weird to do. Like, you normally let the family have some hope. You don't say they're murdered before you know. But they but had found clearly, all that stuff. Yeah. Like, his brain matters on the ceiling. Yeah. Obviously, this scene shows that he was murdered. And it was probably good of them to prepare Jan for that ahead of finding his body. Because I'm sure they could tell it was, like, a really brutal murder. So, during the search, evidence is collected, there's photographs, things are measured, all of that stuff. And the evidence is pointing directly at John Fry and Don Spence. It was pretty clear who did this. And even before Al's body is found, there are articles coming out, information being leaked, and the media was relentless with the story. Jan and her parents are trying to put little pieces together through those days, and they are getting somewhat of an idea. They hear about John. They talk about how dangerous he is, but they don't know if this is the guy who murdered Al, but they start discussing it. Like they're saying, this guy killed him. Like we don't know how he knows him, but they're kind of nervous about him themselves since he knows where Jan lives. And then neighbors and strangers start pounding intrusive and rude questions to Jan, which led her to unplug her phone. She said one neighbor just peeked over the fence and was like, I think he killed himself. Like about Al. And she was like, oh, how do you have the audacity to even comment on this? You yeah. Know? Why would you just like yell that as you're yeah. looking over the fence? Yeah. And she was really shocked. She's 
she was just she thought these people were really insensitive they were their curiosity took over their empathy for a woman going through more than pretty much everyone else could ever imagine john was outside walking down the road with dawn at about 12:45 a.m on the ninth day since al's disappearance so he's holding a bat and this undercover officer comes up to him approaches him him and don do not know that other officers have surrounded them john and don realize they are outnumbered as the officers approach and make themselves known john already had four outstanding warrants so it was easy to hold him and don she had her own warrants for solicitation so she was also in the same boat john at this point is still confident in himself telling don nobody no heat remember like no they found al scalp in your home <laughs> like and blood and yeah hair. you can't have a full-on crime scene in your home but be like nobody they <laughs> can't get us like no so he's dumb at the police station the duo is separated Don Spens is 20 years old at this time, so only 18 when she met Al, and even younger when she started sex work under John, which is not, like, not okay. She was a child when she was brought into this, so that- Oh, she was 18 when she met Al? Mm-hmm, and 20 when they were responsible for his murder. That is bizarre. Or maybe she was almost For some reason, 19. I was thinking she was older. Yeah, no, she's young. She was either freshly 19 or almost 19. I guess I just thought she was older because he was 50. Yeah. At this point, officers are even able to bring in Frank McMaster, who was questioned intensely. He was already on probation. So when officers tell him that they know he's a liar because he's denying everything at first, the detectives, like, they already had so information. So they go through it with Frank, telling him what they know from confidential informants, the evidence they had, showing him a picture of the car they found, and then they let him know that they have a search warrant for his cabin. And they say if they don't find what they want to find, they will demolish the home. And that little home was the only thing Frank had to his name. So he caves, which I don't think you can actually do that, like actually knock down a house. <laughs> so they probably knew with it being the only thing to his name that if they threatened to just destroy the one thing he has, he'd be like, no, like. I'll tell you. So I, he had even asked them not to break in. Like he was like, my neighbor has a key. Go get the key. Don't ruin my home. And then he says he will tell them his side of the story, but he wants to have it put in writing that he will get full immunity. And they give that to him. So he tells them everything he knows. He didn't even know the whole truth, but he gives them a pretty good idea of what had happened once Don and John reached his home. And this is how detectives find the shallow grave with some of Al's remains on the morning of Sunday, July 21st. They find Al's severed feet, size 9. Then there's another package with Al's hands. And the third package held the head of Al Canty. Frank had been taken with them to show where he had helped John dig this grave. Soon they're back interrogating Don and John. Gil Hill even brought in Don's father and sister, hoping they might help her confess to what had happened. Don eventually gives a statement after being presented with all the evidence. She explain, explains her and Al's relationship. She says she swears she was throwing up when John started hitting Al with the bat, but she thinks she did see one blow. Don basically gave the account of what had happened with some lies sprinkled in to disconnect herself from actually being a part of it. So she's of like, course. yeah, she's like telling the truth, but not fully like on her like part. I mean it all on John. Yeah. This information hits the news. 
of course, it's shocking. So the media runs with it. Getting facts wrong with their speculation and their own made-up stories. Neighbors of Jan's, people who knew Jan and Al, they were giving interviews to the media. And Jan could barely stand to even hear the news coverage. It was traumatizing what she would hear them say. The cold way they reported finding decomposed body parts and the murder that had happened. No one had care in these moments for Jan and all that she was going through. Jan called this, quote, a nightmare that never had to happen, end quote. So I kept expecting what did not happen, which was that they would rescind what they'd said, but it didn't happen. And so we we got the burial over pretty quickly after a few months later, I was subpoenaed to go to court for the preliminary exam, which is where they wouldn't have been that long. No, because preliminary exams occur within a few weeks. So I was subpoenaed to go. I had no choice. And I was the first witness there. And that was the first time I'd seen the defendants in person. I was, by that time, I'd shifted out of being scared to being really angry and, and really tired still. And I testified. It's on Monday, July 22nd that Don, John and Don have their first court appearance. Isidori Torres is the judge at this hearing, and he reads the accusations against them. John, murder in the first degree and mutilation of a body. And Don, with accessory to murder after the fact and mutilation of a body. John has no bond option, but Don does. However, she can't afford the $100,000 cash bond. So before Jan has to testify in court, she does have to plan her husband's funeral. But how? If you remember her interview segment in part one where she talks about conflicted grief, it was hard for her to do this because she felt so fake. She was angry. She was confused. She wanted Gladys to choose most everything for Al's funeral. And all Jan wanted was for it to be private. It was July 28, 1985, when a memorial service takes place at a funeral home on Mack Avenue. This is not a burial because Al's body does have to be kept as evidence for the case. Jan arrives two hours early because she just needs a moment alone to breathe. There were so many flowers as Jan looked around, and she was kind of annoyed, actually, because she felt that the flowers disguised Al's actions leading to this tragic ending. She didn't want the media let inside at all, but they did gather outside. And when the memorial service starts, there are 300 people who cram into the small space. Jan is thinking to herself that they don't even know 300 people. And she explains in her book that the heat that day matched her simmering anger. These people were taking advantage of Al's funeral. They were using it for entertainment. Quote, they're peeping toms, they're bloodsuckers, just like the defendants. I wanted to flee, but didn't want them to have something else to comment on. To get through this, I tried to imagine myself on the other side. Why did I even agree to this sideshow? I wanted to unknow my husband. End quote. Ugh, that is sad. I know. So were all those 300 people media? No, they're, I like think they're just kind of people. Like yeah, probably anyone who even met him was like, oh, I'm going to that. You know, and she's like, you don't even really know him. So why are you here? Yeah. But the media does end up making their way in. Jan feels that the funeral home didn't stop them, even though she had asked them to, because they were getting a lot of media attention themselves as the funeral home due to hosting this memorial service. That's sad. Yeah. So she says through the eulogy, there's, you know, talk about how it was shocking, how thoughts ran through everyone's minds of how could he, how could they? And she finds herself silent and wondering, quote, is it better to be the wife of a cheater or the widow of one? End quote. So she's just like really confused, doesn't want to be here really like this 
Did she do the eulogy? No. Oh, she had some. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I'd feel the exact same way as her. Yeah, You'd I would too. You'd be so pissed. Because you're still going to be mad at them either way. But yet, I mean, you were in a relationship with him for 10 years and you don't just yeah. fall out of love, but you're still super angry. Yeah. Like you're finding out about the cheating all at once with the murder. Right. So as they're starting to leave the memorial service, a news reporter takes a video camera and shoves it in Jan's face before her friend puts his hand over the lens, telling them to back off. Jan felt in these moments that these people, the media, even the consumers of the media did not realize that they could be in her shoes at any moment. She said a tragedy like this does not discriminate. And it's an equal opportunity club. I mean, the the media who interviews us or listeners on podcasts don't understand that they can be in our shoes at any time. Most people don't sign up for this. It just finds them. So Jan returns home from that memorial service and she takes off her wedding ring. It has an amber stone in the middle. It's a beautiful ring that shattered Jan's heart to look at. Quote, it whispered a thousand memories, scenarios, and questions, end quote. And the clarity of Al's late nights in the office just flooded Jan's mind. He was so kind about her overtime because he wanted to spend more time with Don. He was so angry at his office to find sorted papers because those papers Jan went through carried a lot of his secrets. And his psychotic break was brought on from the stress of juggling two completely different worlds. Some of their financial difficulties could have come from the way he abandoned his practice. Al basically got so caught up in this life that Jan had found appointment books of his like completely blank. So he's choosing this secret life over everything he had built for himself, everything he built with Jan. And she felt at that time she couldn't really speak her true feelings out loud. Again, we heard from her in part one about that conflicted grief. So after the funeral, Jan was subpoenaed to a preliminary trial on July 31st. It's a Wednesday and she has to be there at 9 a.m. Names she didn't recognize were on the list for witnesses alongside hers. How did all of these people have information in her husband's murder? As she walked into court with Officer Landeros, Jan's mom calls out to her and she's like, Jan, tell the truth. Don't be afraid to be angry. You need to tell them everything. And Jan chuckles. In her book, she writes, quote, she assumed I would whitewash Al's actions. Ha. She re- Ha. <laughs> ha. I, I did not do that. Ha <laughs> good. She kind of, that's when she chuckles. That's why I put that ha in there. <laughs> and then she goes on to say, she misread me entirely. End quote. So she was angry enough that she did want to say everything. Like, like her own mom was saying that to her? Yeah, like her mom was like, make sure you tell every, like, make sure you're, you can be angry. It's okay. And Jen's like, oh, I will be. Yeah. Like, I will not be hiding his actions. So the prosecuting attorney was Robert Nginski. I know I'm not going to say his name right. I listened to it a hundred times on audio in her book. Nginski, something like that. I'm sorry. I'm not going to get it right. And then the defense attorney was Jane Nolan. As Jan walks up to the stand, she lays eyes for the very first time on the woman Al was involved with and the two strangers who knew a different side of her husband and had taken his life. Quote, I had to take a stand to make a stand, end quote. She was confident as she went to testify with the encouraging words from Officer Landeros, who I said in part one, she really trusted. Officer Landeros told her that this is her chance to take control. She could do this. Throughout her questioning, Jan forced herself to look directly at Don Spence and John Carl Fry. 
She was taken back that Al would have drained her life savings and taken everything from their life for these people. These people who looked so drained themselves, so sick. They looked even bored to be here in court. So, yes, he did use her, their savings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Drained it. That'd be hard, too, to yeah. face those two. Yeah. And not ever seeing them before mm-hmm. you're on the stand. Yeah. And, like, you're just taking it all in. <laughs> yeah. All Jan was asked about on the stand was if she came to identify her husband. What did she see when she had to identify him? Quote, what I was not asked about was my loss of faith in people, my rage, my inability to confront my husband about his shameful behavior. The officers of the court did not want to hear about sleepless nights, the emptiness, the fear of lying in my bed while I listened for car doors or muted voices outside. End quote. They just take it over. It is not you're not involved. It's not it almost has nothing to do with you. Which is the opposite of how it used to be. You're, you know, 150 years ago, it was the victim that brought the perpetrator to the justice of the peace. And we were our own defense. We brought charges and the sheriff took them away. And we have completely, it's been outsourced to the point now that we're on the, very much on the outside looking in. And we're not wanted in the courtroom. We're given strict reg. In fact, one of the things that some defense attorneys will do is put the victims, the secondary victims, on their witness list never intending on calling them because as a witness to a trial, you must wait outside the courtroom. And then only the prosecutor asked Jan questions. The defense attorney, Jay, he stood up and he declined to ask her anything, which actually kind of made her mad. She felt like she he wanted to get her out of there. It's a docket number, pure and simple. And it's only gotten more so today when it comes to murder, 97% of murder cases are dealt with through plea bargains. We don't even get trials. So they get a reduced sentence and you get reduced information and it's over and done with really fast and that's it. It's not law and order out there, that's for sure. And this is all at just the preliminary trial. So they must have done the preliminary together, but their trials, their actual trials are not together. But this is just the very first one. And Once she's done testifying, it's stranger after stranger that take the stand. People Jan was shocked to find out that Al even hung around. Again, just questioning. It's like over and over, how do all these people know him? It was just so strange to see. And throughout their testimony, Jan learned a lot about Al's case, what had gone on during the crime and the disposal of Al, what all had led to this. And Al's autopsy revealed mountains of injuries, and these were presented at that preliminary trial as well. They, he had at least four strikes to his head. It's proven that Al was alive when he started being beaten. And John and Don await trial in Wayne County Jail. Both had decided to plead not guilty. So I might not have said that yet, but yes, they plead, they plead not guilty. It's on September 19, 1985, when Al is buried in Elmwood Cemetery. So this must be after the preliminary. I think they allowed him to be buried. Well, it's a... It's a- criminal-centric system. That's They don't make any bones about it. They're not there for you. They're there because they broke the law. They want to find out who broke the law and deal with it. You, you're like ir- immaterial to the whole thing. It's a crime against the state, not you. That's how it's looked at. I felt like telling him, look, are you going to be visiting his grave? Are you going to be packing up his clothing? Are you going to be paying off these bills? If not, then why do you consider you, you're in charge of all this? That you're impacted because you're not. Now, after the preliminary trial, Jan actually decides not to attend the actual trial. She said that it would not change her life. 
it would not take away her grief. She explains that there is no ending. There's really never closure for someone who loses another to murder. She just wanted nothing to do with the whole thing. The trial occurred, that was in January or December, and I did not go. Most homicide survivors do go, by the way. Most want to be at every motion, every hearing, every nuance. I had the opposite. I thought, you know, no matter what happens, even if these two monsters are let go, my life doesn't change. I'll still be a widow. I'll still be broke. I still got the media. I still got to sell my house. I still got to find a way to make a living. None of that would change as a function of them. John and Dawn, while they're awaiting their trial, they write these lovey-dovey letters to each other. And I know. Although Dawn later testifies that John Forster into helping dispose of those body parts. Uh-huh. But they're literally writing each other how much they love each other. And she says that she wants them to get married and have a baby once they're out of prison. Like, someone was murdered. <laughs> At least one of you is going for a long time. Like, you're not getting married and having a baby. You saw this guy murder another guy. And, and you want to have, have a, baby a baby with him. With him. Yeah. <laughs> Smart. Well, I have two reactions to that. One is that's why you don't use the word closure with a homicide survivor, because there is no closure. It goes on the rest of your life. Closure means conclusion, and there isn't a conclusion. And secondly, that it is a victim. It it is not a victim-centric system. It is a crime, a a criminal-centric system. They're not there to hold your hand. You are very much on the periphery. You are on the periphery to the point where they could make the arrest the trial, the sentencing, and putting them away in prison without you. Soon, a charge of attempted escape was actually tacked on to John's impending trials. It was September 11th when he paid a guard $1,000 to smuggle in a gun and give it to him. And then he intimidates another officer to switch clothes with him, and he's able to just walk right out of the prison with a gun and two saw blades that he was able to get. (sighs) So he's out and about, you know, he's free on the streets, but not for very long before he is caught and brought back to prison. Oh, but he made it all the way out. Yeah, he got out. He just walked out in the officer's clothing. So that was obviously embarrassing to the state and to the prison because multiple officers were complicit in John's escape. Paid off guards, got their uniform and got a knife and got out. But he was only out for a couple hours and then they caught him and put him back. And he was charged with that offense, and he thought that was really funny, you know, like, he didn't care. He'd been in prison so many times. There is an evidentiary hearing held on October 1st. It's then that Dawn tries to recant her confession, saying that she was scared. She wanted to go home, so she just gave that statement, but it wasn't true. The officers were coercing her into a confession, but the judge rules that this is denied because Dawn was lacking credibility. So she's basically trying to not have to throw John under the bus now because that whole confession is all about how he did murder Al, but she wasn't really involved. So now she's trying to take it back, but they deny it. They're going to, yeah, they're going to let it be presented in court. On December 2nd, John's trial officially begins. The trials are separate. John actually opted for a jury trial while Don chose a bench trial. So a trial where just the judge decides instead of a jury. And it's Judge Sapella who resides over these trials. Evidence of John's threats to multiple people about killing Al before he did were presented because they have to prove for first-degree murder that it was premeditated. Like, oh. Al went there saying he wasn't going to give them money anymore, and he did act in, like, a fit of rage. But if it was just that, like, if he was just 100% caught off guard and never had planned to kill him ever, 
it would be second degree murder. Hmm. But they want to prove that it's first degree murder, which he did say over the course of months that he was going to kill Al. And then Jan had requested the maximum penalty for John. She did believe he was the killer. He was the worst in the situation. So John, he gets up to make a statement and he asks for mercy after saying he has regret for Dr. Canty's family. But most of all, he has regret for Don Spence because he subjected her to the pos- this possible time in prison. And I just thought that was annoying. Like, don't say you feel the most regret for Don. Like, yeah, that doesn't make you sound like. And then it he makes said, you sound like a jerk. He said, give me mercy, not for myself, but for Don. Like, so that you guys can live a life together and have a baby like she wanted? No. like So you could get back to being her boss and having her work it, on the street? Exactly. I was like, that was a very weird statement for you to try and gain some sympathy because no. That shows no remorse to I me for the family. Work. It didn't because John is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. No, he died in prison in about five years after he was convicted of hep C and diabetes. So then Dawn's trial starts on December 12th, and there wasn't a media circus surrounding her trial like there was with the entire case and John's trial. At the end of her bench trial on December 17th, Judge Sapella says that he believes Dawn did find a safe haven with John Fry because she was extremely dependent on him. But then he also says, quote, I believe ultimately Miss Benz acted out of motives other than fear and death. And Dawn is found not guilty on count two, mutilation of a body. But she is found guilty on count three, accessory after the fact. They were both convicted, but given very different sentences. John Fry was given life without the chance of parole. There is no death sentence in Michigan. And she was given time credit for being in jail, sent to drug rehab, and she was on the streets in a matter of about, I think it was six months. Even though she was never charged with with transporting his body, she was never charged with prostitution, she was never charged with drug abuse, car theft, there's a lot of things that they could have put against her, but they never brought them to her. And so she was literally out before I could sell my house. Dawn, she does make a statement and she says she is sorry to Dr. Canty's family and her own family before explaining that she is a victim too and she wants the second chance. So she was given three years probation and 10 months in jail. Time served meant she would be out in less than six months. And after her time in the Wayne County Jail, she went to Don Farms Rehab and was free by March 19th, 1986 at the age of 21. Wow. Yeah. That's bizarre. I know. You can dismember a body and... You can help, like, take someone's feet, hands, head, torso, discard of them, bury them. You can, like, help in all of this stuff and be out in six months. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. And Jan said, you know, she's never contacted her, which she's grateful for. She's like, I don't, I'm glad she never reached out for to me. I don't want to talk to her. But she said she did hear she was doing better, that she cleaned up from drugs after that. And she did go on to have kids and live a normal life. Wow. Yeah. That's so crazy. I don't know if I she didn't think she would. No, I didn't either. But that's just what she's heard. And that's just what Jan told me. I didn't confirm that anywhere. But (laughs) I said in part one that Jan didn't really dive into everything about Al's secrets until much later in her life. So everything we talked about today isn't necessarily what Jan knew in these moments. 
Like she knew what was coming out in the media. She knew what came out at that preliminary trial. She had these bits and pieces, but she never really investigated it too deeply. Like, you know, when you have a like, you know, you want to know something and you start looking everywhere for it, even like in these cases, you're like digging for information. She never did that. And she was she just said she was too busy grieving. She was getting back to her life. I think I played a clip in part one where she said grieving was a luxury. Like she didn't have the luxury to even investigate it because she was trying to figure out how to pay for her house and how to get out of debt and how to like continue her life. Yeah. So like I said, she had at least looked through some of the media and she did that before going back to work because she wanted to know what her patients coming in would know about her. She didn't want them having read things in the media that she never read. But it's many years down the road that Jan was really ready to open up her eyes to what had happened. Jan had worked with a man who wrote a book on Al's case. He was a reporter in Detroit and he was going to write the write the book regardless. He had called her a few times and she kept saying no, like hung up on him. She was like, I don't want to talk with you. You know, she's had a horrible time with the media. And he was one of the reporters who published a lot of the stuff and she said he had done that because he wanted to keep the story alive because he's going to write this book on it and then as he's reaching out to her her lawyer ends up telling her that it probably is a good idea that she does work with him because a she could help control the book and what was put into it and then b she could also learn a lot about what had happened so that is one of the ways she said she learned so much she's like my lawyer was right they ended up building a good relationship like she had wanted nothing to do with him at first but she had told me something about him being like the first time oh the first time she said no he responded to her and was like but why like this is the biggest story of my life and she was like pissed because she's like the biggest story of your life like this is (laughs) my my life." life And so I think years down the road, he realized that that was really insensitive. So when he called her again, he apologized for being so selfish about Uh it and like seeing it as a story versus someone's life. Yeah. And I didn't want to meet with him. He kept bugging me to meet with him and I kept hanging up on him. And my attorney said, you really need to meet with him. And I go, why? And I said, because I got to move on. I can't be mired in this. And he said, for two reasons. He said, one... And most importantly, he's going to give you answers to a lot of your questions that you don't have because you don't have the wherewithal to get the answers, and he does. And secondly, he's going to write it with or without your consent, and if you want it accurate, you should be doing it. And I said, I don't care if it's accurate. It's not my book. It's not my problem. I don't care. The people that love me aren't going to be swayed by anything he says, and I don't care what the public thinks at this point. But as for the other question that he raised, I mean, the business about that I would need information, I kind of thought about that. And I thought, you know, he's right about that. So I went in there and I put parameters on it. I said, I want to have as minor role in this book as possible. I want to have a say over the parts. I want to make sure they're accurate. I'm not asking you to change things if they're not right. I mean, if, if they're right, but I want to make sure it's right. And I, and I want to keep it very, very small, my role in it. So, and I want information. That's the only reason. I don't want any money. I don't want anything else but information. So with those terms in mind, we met over a period of six months, about a weekly basis. And I learned a whole bunch from him. It was helpful. I mean, my attorney was correct. So after the trials, once the media settles down, Jan was angry. She kept to herself. She had this really pessimistic outlook on the world. 
But as the years go on, she's able to find love again, meeting her current husband, who she does have children with. To show how little Jan spoke about what trauma she had been through, she didn't even tell her husband when they were dating that Al was murdered. You know, when you're dating, you say, well, have you ever been married for? I mean, that question comes up, right? And I'm like, yeah, well, how did he die? And I go, suddenly. And it, well, what happened? Well, I'll tell you later. And I, I just did not want to go there. I did not want to talk about it. So we finally got engaged and he goes, I, could you tell me now? <laughs> and I said, I'm only going to say this and I'm not going to give you details. And I just gave him a quick rundown. And he, he was like, oh, well, nobody's chasing after me. I'm what you see. <laughs> and uh, if you want to tell me more later, tell me more later. And it really wasn't until he read my book that he knew all the story of it. Like, she did not want to talk about this. Oh, wow. Like, she took that and continued her life and, like, buried it. Yeah. So, she had decided to finally talk about it after a few things had happened at work 30 years after Al's murder. There was three things that happened in one week. One was that we had a speaker at work, you're correct on that, a physician, talking about something. I don't remember the main point of his talk. But as an offhanded comment, he made the statement that people who live with the secret for years pay a price physically. And I'm like, ooh, that got my attention. <laughs> and that same week, we happened to have a coworker missing. And people were buzzing about that. And people would come up to me and say, oh, what do you think's happening? I can't imagine. Could you imagine having somebody in your family missing? And I'm going, oh, no, I can't imagine that. And I'm thinking, I'm so phony. Of course I can imagine that. And then I went back to my office and I looked over at these books that are still my favorite books. It's a series I collected over the years of people that had been through various kinds of trauma and came out of it and wrote about it and talked about it and grew from it. Like there was one on the 67, on the 69 Chilean miners who were buried underground. I mean, 39 who were buried for 69 days. There was um, a woman who was, a house was ransacked and it took her daughter put dynamite on the back of her daughter because they wanted her to go into her bank where she was the manager and rob the, rob the bank for them and all these different situations. And I looked over at those books and I thought, you know, if they can tell their story, I can too. And I, so I gingerly, this, by this time the internet had been invented, so I started sleuthing to see what was out there. And I was shocked that, that Al's murder was still alive and well on the internet. I, this is years and years later. And I'm like, what in the world? And so I started cautiously, carefully, selectively talking about it with a few close friends. And they were like, what? How could I not know this about you? And from there, I've kind of gone the other extreme. I mean, now I'm like, I'm doing the podcast. I have, I support other people. I've got the book out. I got one on the way. I do speaking engagements. If you want to read Jan's book for an even deeper dive into this case, you can find it on Amazon, Kindle, and more. It's also on audiobook in Audible, and you can visit her website. She's also releasing this new book this year, and it's titled What Now? Navigating the Aftermath of Homicide and Suicide. And this is a book she's written dedicated to family members and loved ones grieving those losses. She did a lot of good work. She worked with like experts, and she like took a lot of time to really make it actually helpful to these people well she sounds amazing like I an know. amazing lady herself i know i liked her so be much be able to get mm-hmm. over that in her life to move on to be yeah. successful in her career then to go on and actually open up and write these books yeah and so it's like the perfect she's amazing person to help people she has a facebook group that's only for 
like homicide and suicide survivors like the family but and then me and Jan were emailing between part one and part two and she let me know that she has just agreed to be interviewed by Efren Films and Discovery as a part of a series that they're going to do about people who lived double lives so we're all going to have to keep our eye out for that. I was obsessed with knowing why so I interviewed his high school friends I I looked at old photographs, I looked at old newspaper articles, I interviewed people, I went back to Detroit, I, I retraced the footsteps, I did a lot of things. I, I read 11 pounds of court testimony. So I, I investigated it as best I could and with what I knew as a psychologist myself, put it together and so that was a big change from the other book that was out there with this book. And But it, it didn't satisfy me, I felt. The story is important, but I wanted to do something more for other homicide survivors. But the cool thing was I had 17 collaborators on this book. They gave me time anytime I asked for that without anything in return. People I didn't even know, like I called up this one defense attorney in Chicago who was kind of a big name, and I said to him, I'm doing this book and I'm doing a chapter that has to do with being wrongly convicted wrongly charged and convicted in the homicide of your loved one because that happens and I have a rundown of what to I wanted a, a like a one-page thing of what do you do if you're gonna be if you get the feeling you're being looked at for the murder of a loved one and you didn't do it and I want to make sure I'm giving the right advice can I run this list by it? and he goes sure and I, I didn't he goes sounds good to me you know and then I I wanted to speak with a with a funeral director who had had a murder in their family and I found one to get advice on how to have a funeral that was very different from mine uh, experience and how to keep the media out and keep it respectful and safe. She contributed, I mean, it ended up being 17 different people and they were very instrumental in making sure it was accurate and comprehensive. So it, it turned out to be a little longer than I would like and it, it's aimed at both suicide and homicide survivors. I tried to put everything in one place so it's not hard to find, it's www. Jan Canty, C-A-N-T-Y, Ph.D. Uh, dot com. And there's uh, also resources on there for homicide survivors as well. But it talks about the podcast, Domino Effect of Murder. It talks about the Life Divided book, the one that I'm changing the name of the title for, Coping with the Death of a Loved One. And then also I'm an administrator of a Facebook group, a private Facebook group for other homicide survivors called Homicide Survivors and Thrivers. And I have consultants on that group as well. I, I did not want it to be a typical Facebook support group where it's like, I'm so sorry to hear of your loss. And that doesn't cut it. That's not enough. So this is informational as well as, as support. And I have people sitting on the sidelines. Like I have a former crime reporter that talks about media inquiries. I have an attorney that answers some legal questions. And I have the funeral director. I mean, there's different people that bring their expertise when they're called. Otherwise, they're pretty silent and invisible. But they're on the sidelines. And I try to make it as informational. Like I, this week, I want to post something on how to write a victim impact statement because people don't know about how, why, how to do that. And the problem is they're not used. Yeah, they're allowed in the courtroom to go in there and deliver it, but the judges don't make use of it in about 95% of the time. They don't, they don't pay attention to it because it's not what they need. And, and we don't know what we, we need to write to make it useful. So I wanted to do a little piece on that. I did one a while back 
uh, actually about a year ago called uh, "This Is Your Brain on Dr- on This Is Your Brain on Homicide," and it talks about the, the physiological changes in your brain that happens during trauma. For example, one is that you have hypoxia, which is low oxygen to the speech centers of your brain when you're confronted with a trauma, which is about the time that the news people put the microphone in your face. No wonder you stammer and don't know what to say and you can't think, and then that's recorded for the rest of your life. And so I wanted people to know what happens to your brain on homicide and why you respond the way you do. It's not because you're dumb. It's not because you're weak. It's physiological.